Good morning. Wow. Good morning. Man. I'm used to North Campus being kind of excited, so I wasn't expecting that. Good morning. Yeah. Though you are responding as I often feel in the morning. I'm not a morning person. I get up super early, but I don't like to really talk to people. My wife had to learn that over the years of our marriage. She's just the opposite. She loves mornings, you know, but she'll go to bed if, if I let her at 8 30, 9 o'clock, you know, and I'm just like wired on caffeine for the rest of the evening. But whatever the case, God's people come together. And when we just stood in reverence for the word, that is an amazing thing. I love it. Now, as you come into the church this morning, uh, as Christians are all over the world this morning, uh, we want to make sure that our hearts are prepared, that we're in a spirit of teachability, availability to what God wants to do through his word. Not so that you can rate uh, the pastor preaching, not so that we can say, well, I hope these words have some you know, measure of uh, applicability to me, we really want to come together so that we can see the sun, so that Jesus Christ himself is present for us, that we are focused on him and that we're ready to worship. And to that end, let's just have a word of prayer. Father, we just thank you for the book of Ephesians this morning. We thank you that uh, we're bringing forth a document written some 2,000 years ago in the midst of turmoil and strife in the midst of a very godless people, a community, Father, that was the focus of pagan worship in its day. We ask, Lord, that now in our day, as we sit here, uh, that we will be engaging, that we'll have our Bibles open, our phones on, whatever it takes to see your word, and that we will know that we are participants in not just the reading of the word, but in the understanding of the word. May your Holy Spirit so open our eyes and fill our hearts so, Father, that we can rejoice at just the very sounds that your word makes in our soul. Lord, I praise you for every person here. I praise you for my opportunity to be here this morning. And I just ask God for your blessing upon us. May we leave here feeling closer and knowing that we are closer to your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right. So as has been told, we're in Ephesians chapter 4 uh, this morning. A lot has been written about what the state the status of the church lately um, people are quite often mentioning in different uh, magazines and journal articles and so forth uh, that people are leaving the church especially young people young adults and what are we going to do about that and you know there are whole seminars that are being taught across the country on that it's not unusual for uh, anything from a theological conference to a youth conference to a counseling conference for there to be some focus on this. Uh, that's why this morning's message on walking worthily in the manner in which we have been called is so uh, something so powerful because it brings us closer together. And the focus of this passage is really going to be on you, me, and the person sitting next to you this morning, right? It's going to be in how do we function together as the body of Christ. Uh, group publishing in a few years back put out an article that later developed into a book uh, categorizing two kind of new arrivals on the church scene in the last few years and they called them the nuns and the duns 
the nuns are those very people that I just mentioned, people who, for whatever reason, feel that the church has little to say to them. They're down on organized religion. They don't like the expression of the church. Uh, they find it easier to just disassociate themselves from anything with classic Christianity in the title or in the emphasis. And they have a strong belief that I'm, I'm still spiritual, I'm still a Christian, but I really don't want to identify with that which is called church. Those are the nuns. They have no church. And the duns are another demographic, a little more unique, something uh, that has just kind of come about. And in this camp of people, you will find that typically they are people who've had an intimate association with the church, uh, former pastors, pastors' kids, people who have been teachers and leaders in the church, uh, people who are there Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. And in their experience, they've had so much conflict, so much trouble. Uh, they've been so disappointed in their fellow churchgoers that they decide, I'm just done. I can't take it anymore. I don't want to associate with any church. It's not that they stop loving Jesus. It's not like they don't uh, have a personal relationship with him. They're just tired of church. And of people. I don't know if you've been there. I have to confess I've been there several times, right? And I'm even far more aware that I probably have been the cause of many other people thinking, I'm done <laughs> with Dave Foster. I'm done with church. Uh, I can't take it anymore. We do that to each other, don't we? You know, it's just sometimes the burden that we bear for each other, the, the problems that may arise in a church. There's financial stress, there's leadership stress, there's all kinds of things that fly at us. I talked to a pastor recently who had been in the ministry for 36, 37 years. And he told me, I'm retiring. And I said, really, that's interesting. Most pastors can't retire. We just keep going until we die, right? You know, we're in the pulpit, and we, that's our hope, is that we'll die with the Bibles open and the boots on. And, uh, but he said, I just I can't take it anymore. I'm going to go work. And he, he said this literally, I want to be a greeter at Walmart. Seriously? Yeah, I, I just done. I'm done. Uh, one of my good, good friends I went to Bible college with in Omaha and then Dallas Seminary uh, was a pastor. Uh, he went to upstate New York. And through a series of events, he ended up getting on the bad side of different groups of churches. He got fired three different times. Uh, not because of any immorality, not because he made it off with the church funds, but he just had hit the wrong group of people. Every church has its nexus of leadership, right? The uh, chief cogs in the synagogue. And if you have any wisdom at all as a pastor, when you get there, you're going to discover who those people are, and you're going to see, can I fit with them? Can I help them? And you're, in your mind, you're always optimistic that maybe we could just twist that a little bit, move that along so that they don't dominate the church. Well, my friend never got there. He didn't have the best people sense. And he found himself at about 46 in upstate uh, Texas, actually, uh, after his third church. He had had enough. He was done. Quit the pastorate, became a state trooper, but eventually that root of bitterness in his heart that he felt towards God's people, 
grew and grew to the point where he left his wife, he left his three daughters, and he went and moved 500 miles away from everything and everyone that really knew him. I wish I could say there's a happy ending to that story. I do stay in contact with this man. Uh, the last time I wrote to him, he wrote me a cryptic little postcard back. It said, what can I say, Dave? I screwed up. We all get there. Maybe at different degrees of intensity, but we all sometimes feel like, what would it be like to be a nun? Or maybe I just would rather be done. But I'm going to encourage you this morning that as we read chapter 4 of Ephesians, it's almost as if Paul can anticipate this is going to be the response of God's people from time to time. And how much more we need to resist those impulses. We need to stop seeing the negatives and focus on different things. Why do you go to church this morning? That's my question to you. Why are you here? If you've come to see certain people and you say, oh, I love being with God's people. I love seeing him. I love seeing her. I love the children's program. I love whatever. It just fills me. The music is so great. All of those are great answers, right? But we're going to see from the word today, that's not really why we go to church. That's not why we're part of God's family. The why answer has to be and can only be that I want more of Jesus. I want to focus on the Son of God. I want to be where he is. And Jesus, love it or hate it, has said that this body, this church, is the place that I have called and chosen for you to grow, for you to have community, for you to fellowship. There is nothing outside of this. I, too often I run into kids, especially college kids, who say, I'm done with church. I'm just going to go and do my own thing. And then they become young marrieds. And they're at home, and they have children. And I call them on the phone and say, hey, we haven't seen you at Parkview for a while. What's going on? But I'm done. Don't want anything else to do with that. I'm going to just kind of worship God in my own home. There actually was a home church movement for a while in this country, like homeschoolers. They were home churchers. And I asked, I said, well, that's interesting. So when you take up your offering, who does that go to? <laughs> right? Are you a sending organization as is commanded in the word? Do you have missionaries going out? Are you sending your son to Biafra or something like that? You know, no, you're not, it's not happening. But somehow we've got the idea that we can do this on our own. We can be lone rangers. We can be cowboys. And I can still have a witness to my friends and my family. I just don't want the association of that title behind me. Something community church, something Baptist church, something Presbyterian church. I just can't handle that. Those people, well, you don't have a choice. All right? You are the church. And no matter where you go and what you do, you will always be the church. It's not the building. It's not even the congregation. It's the links, the limbs, the joints, the body. That's who we are. Well, let's dive in and take a look at this. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. And that's what we're calling this morning's uh, sermon. It's to walk worthily. And then he lists some descriptions of this and how you are to walk. And he uses some great words with all humility, all right? Think about that for a second. With all humility, James writes in his book that we should be humble. 
that no matter who we are in society, we're not the same person when we come in here. Too often churches like to look at somebody who's been successful in the business world or maybe is a doctor in the medical field or whatever, and instantly we start uh, kowtowing to that person, saying, hey, why don't you take this front seat? Why don't you uh, think about becoming an elder or a deacon? Why don't you come teach our Sunday school class? And yet if someone walks in off the street who does not have that, who has not achieved those things, it's very easy for us to just kind of ignore them. Or at least we don't put them in a position of leadership. But Paul says, no, walk in humility. And then what does he say? In gentleness. Wow, that's a tough one. You know, I, I'm not always happy with some of the older translations of this particular Greek phrase, gentleness. Uh, in the old King James, it was called meek or meekness. Uh, meek, in our use of it in contemporary English, connotes an idea that you are passive, that you are passive and that you are easily imposed upon. And that's not what this word is saying at all. It's referencing a person with character, a person that has the ability to stay in control and not put their own needs ahead of others and to deal with them in a way that Christ would deal with them. It's throughout Scripture mentioned. Gentleness. God is gentle in the Old Testament. Three different times in Psalms we're told that God is gentle. It's the, probably the best descriptive term of how Christ dealt with the people he was dealing with at all times, to be gentle. Um, it is that which is described by the Apostle Paul as how we should deal with a brother who has fallen off into sin. Wow. I told you just the story of my friend who used to be a pastor and who had gotten out of that um, and I went to a conference a few months later, and there were three of us in seminary that hung out all the time together, right? Gary, Neil, and me. And I didn't know my friend Neil was going to be at this conference. And I saw him, and I was like, Neil, Neil. And I said, let's get together. I said, hey, Neil. I said, we got to do something. Gary is in severe trouble. He's left his family. He's left the ministry. He's moved away, away from his girls. You and I need to fly, get on a plane and fly down to Texas and let's just take care of this situation. And I don't know what I was thinking. I don't know what I thought good we could do. And I'd find Gary and, you know, whip him with a whip or, you know, talk sense into him, do something. I said, this is not the guy we know. And Neil looked at me and he says, Dave. And I could say, uh-oh. You know, you get that feeling. And he said, uh, my wife left me about two months ago. And I didn't know what to say. And I just stood there like a dope. I should have ministered to him. But I was so stunned, I couldn't believe it. And he turned away and he went back into the conference. When I got home, I tried to call him. I used to tell my wife what I had done. And she says, oh, that was brilliant, Dave. <laughs> that was great. You know, can't you think of some other thing to say? You're a pastor for Pete's sake. But it was my two best friends. I've known them for years. We did Christmas at each other's homes. We did all kinds of things together. And here, both of their family lives, for different reasons, have broken. I've tried to call Neil, I can't tell you how many times, and he won't answer the phone. I think he felt so judged by me at that moment that he decided that he didn't see me very often now anyway, so no big loss. I wish. I wish I could get a hold of him. You see, that's, what we, that's not gentleness, but that's what we do sometimes to each other, right? 
we have an idea of what we should do, but we don't really think of it in terms of how we should do it in Christ. So we have to be humble. We have to be gentle. We have to have patience. This word in the Greek is amazing. It's actually the word for anger, thumos. Uh, Paul uses anger in a, the vocabulary quite often, so we know this word. And then he chooses himself to make this a compound word. It's anger, and then he puts a prefix on it, macros, meaning a long way. So think of it this way. Anger's at the back of the church, and we all get this way, don't we? It's so easy to get angry. I was telling my wife, this is just typical Dave, I'm going through thy sermon because Ion likes me to preach it to her one-on-one uh, -on -one. and as we're driving, and I'm saying to her, this great thing, you know, it's anger, and then Macross is in front. What are you doing? Get out of the way, you idiot! <laughs> anyway, Ion, so we're not supposed to be, you know. Well, Paul says, no, anger is back there. Macross is in front of it, and it means a long way. It's not necessarily slow like in time, it's a distance, almost unreachable. So it means a distant anger. Patience is a distant anger. It says this word, it's used in the Septuagint in a similar form to say that God is slow to anger, right? We all have different areas that make us really angry. Uh, sometimes our kids make us angry, sometimes our spouse makes us angry, we get angry at work. But we're supposed to imagine, no, I'm going to be patient. I'm going to realize that that anger is way off there. And it's a distance to travel. It costs us something to get there. And I'm not going there. So be humble. Be gentle. Be patient. Bearing with one another in agape, in love. Oh, man, we don't deserve the love that we give to one another. That's what the church should be about, right? We walk through those back doors. Is when you do that, are you already in prayer and saying, God, somebody this morning needs a word of love. Someone needs to hear that I'm standing alongside of them. Uh, my wife is a great convictor of this to me. Uh, if you know my own, uh, you know that she and I both do a lot of teaching in the church. We love to study you walk into my office, at least, and it's just like a library that got hit by an earthquake. Books are falling off the shelf. Things are all kitsy-catsy, and, you know, it's just kind of nuts. But I own between services. It's not unusual for her to go into one of the secretary's desk spaces and put together lessons for her knowing hymn studies or whatever she's working on. Similarly with me, and we both felt convicted by God not too long ago, but she is just, I just watched her. And what she does now is she has just laid aside that, that responsibility. And she has decided that from now on, in between services, she's going to be out there in the foyer at Central Campus. She has no idea who she's supposed to meet with. These aren't appointments. But it's just that she's waiting for the Holy Spirit to direct her to somebody, some lady, who needs encouragement, who needs help. And I can't tell you the conversations that she's had. They've been so amazing. She'll get in the car and she'll say, do you want to hear what God's done today? Do you want to hear how I was able to just be an encourager to someone? And most of the time, that same person has been an encourager to her. That's our job, bearing up with one another in love, coming alongside of each other. That's a great thing. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, Paul continues, in the bond 
of peace. All of these things, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing up one another, it all comes together in the Holy Spirit. And the, the byproduct of that for any church is a bond, a certificate of security, a promise of peace. That is amazing. Paul continues on here in a series of very strong statements. There are seven oneness descriptors, right? If you're reading this uh, in the original language, which I'm sure you're all doing right now, uh, you, you just get, you're overwhelmed with this one, 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 one. That's basically all he's doing. It's an understood uh, rhetorical device that Paul is saying to the readers, and they would have known this in the first century, that you're supposed to put there is, right? in front of there, though there is, is not in the original language, right? There is, there is one body. There is one spirit, right? Just as you were called to the one hope uh, that belongs to that Lord. There is one Lord, one faith. There is one baptism. There is one God and Father. There is, there is, there is. And Paul's just saying this. If this is all theologically true, that there aren't two gods, there aren't three gods, there aren't two churches, there aren't four churches, and you go, wait a minute, just in North Liberty, there's a zillion churches up here. That's not what he's talking about. He's looking at that capital C. Usually when Paul goes into these kind of descriptions, he starts with God, he goes to Jesus, he has the Holy Spirit, and he talks about the church, and he talks about us. This time he takes that and he flips it upside down, and he says there is one body, because that's his emphasis here. We're one body right? Uh, there, you know, like uh, Greg Hansen is sitting here. Gr half of Greg isn't sitting there, and half of Greg's sitting here. There's just one. It's impossible to divide him, right? Uh, but yet we sometimes have that image of the church. Well, this is Parkview North. There's Parkview Central. There's Parkview East, right? There's Veritas. There's Grace. There's New Life, New Covenant, you know, on and on and on. I met a guy the other day who we brought in for our tech conference at Central Campus. Who's at? Uh, he's the middle school pastor at Second Baptist. And I said, Second Baptist? He goes, well, I was part of First Baptist. Now I'm part of Second Baptist. Is there a Third Baptist? <laughs> no. Uh, you know, those just the world looks at that division, and they're like, what is that all about? But we're one body. One body. When we get to heaven, I think, and I'm afraid, that'll be the first time that we truly have a sense of how one our body is, right? Not a lot of cooperation happens between bodies, and sometimes not a lot even between the local body, but there is one body, one spirit. I love this, one baptism. Uh, we celebrate baptism at Parkview regularly throughout the year. It's an exciting time, and it is, uh, but it is that common ritual that has been the identifier of those who belong to this body since the beginning of the church. Jesus himself was baptized in the River Jordan by John the Baptist. And when he got out of the water, the, the Father spoke, this is my Son. The Holy Spirit descended as a dove. It was a Trinitarian moment. When we're baptized, the Apostle Paul says we're identifying with Christ. We go into the water, our sins have been taken care of by the Son. We have died to self, and when we come up, we're freshly clean. We're new creatures in Christ. Everybody that's in the body 
has been baptized. Everybody. It doesn't matter which church you go to, what church your practices, you know, uh, different churches dip, they pour, they immerse, so forth. Baptism has historically and presently been the identifier of those who belong to the body. There is one baptism. It's amazing. It's not spirit baptism that he's referencing here, but actually water baptism. And so what's the sum summation of all that? And I love these uh, prepositions that he used. It is, this is overall, through all, and in all. Basically, he's just trying to say this. It doesn't matter where you look. It doesn't matter what your experiences are. It doesn't matter where you come from or where you think you're going. The church, this body, is complete. You can't escape it. It is all. That, when I do hear believers that have left the church and are not going anywhere else, and I have met people who wanted to go to a different body, different church, and I think, well, that's fine. As long as you're going, you have my blessing. As long as you want to go someplace where you can plug in more effectively than you've been plugging in here, great. But sometimes I call people. We do this, at least at Central Campus. We track the people who've been to Sunday school. Well, that's what you do when you're doing a check-in. It's a little shifty thing we do. We'll call you if you haven't shown up for a while. And we'll say, hey, I just want to know that you're doing okay and how's life? Oh, yeah, we're still members of Parkview. <coughs> well, that's interesting. I haven't seen you here in about two years. And there's no electronic listing that you've been here for quite a while. Well, yeah, but we had a baby. You had a baby? Yeah. And then we had a second baby. Yeah. Well, you know, I am the pastor of children's. <laughs> We have a nursery. You can come. Well, yeah, I know, but you know, you get so busy when you have children. I had a lady in my old church in Nebraska. She had seven children. She was the head of the nursery ministry. She'd get that same excuse from people, and she'd be like, what are they saying? Can you believe that? You meet families that have three kids. This is the difference between having one kid and three kids. You have one kid, you think, well, I don't want the germs. I don't know when's the right time to bring them into the the nursery and do all these things. You find a mom with three kids, you can't wait to get to church. <laughs> Take my kids, please, you know. It's crazy the excuses that we can come up with, right? It's everywhere. It's overall, it's through all, it's in all, right? Do that with me. Overall, through all, these are three prepositions, and in all. That's where you belong. That's what Christ has established for you. When you choose to separate yourself from the body of Christ for whatever reason, whether you're a nun or a dun, you lose out on the created blessing that God intended for you and for me. And then Paul jumps into this really strange passage here, uh, starting in verse 7, and really going down to the parenthetical statements in verses 9 and 10, where he talks about uh, how Christ ascended and he, he take, took captivity captive and uh, brought, gave us gifts, each one of us. Now, this is referencing, as uh, Linda read, Psalm 68. And Psalm 68 is typically categorized as a divine warrior psalm. It means that God uh, in that psalm is portrayed as being a divine warrior for his people. He's the one that's going to battle for you. He will deliver you. And Paul goes into that to uh, Psalm 68, verse 18, and he takes out one small passage. And when you read them and compare them, you think, well, 
It's not exactly the same wording. It's another one of those strange ones. And we look at the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's not exactly like that either. What Paul is doing is taking that verse, and for his own purposes, he's turning it into something a little bit different. It is his explanation as to why we have this oneness, why Christ was able to bless the body with gifts. Um, some people go so far as to say it's possible that Paul has Psalm 68, the divine warrior, in mind throughout the entire book of Ephesians. This is his way of saying the same thing in New Testament truths, which would then make sense when we get to Ephesians 6, right? Where his instruction is to put on the whole armor of Christ, right? Put on that breastplate of righteousness, you know, pick up that sword, uh, you know, so forth. That, that's probably what he has in mind. The divine warrior is the one that has first descended, as he says, uh, when Christ was put on the cross, he died for our sins. It says that he went to hell, taking our penalty with him, and then he ascends, first descent, and then he's resurrected. And in such a resurrection, he has earned the right to do what? To distribute gifts. And that's why Paul goes there. As you read it, it's a really a parenthetical statement. You should be able to jump right from verse 6 to verse 12, uh, excuse me, verse 11, without any hiccups. But we'll just stop and say that much for it. Uh, it is first descent and then ascent, and Christ is our divine warrior. I'm going to mention a little bit more about that in a second. Let's look at verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. There's a lot we could say here with those people. I'm just going to say this. There are five different ministry gifts that Paul mentions here. These are not all the gifts. But because his focus is on the church, he wants to stress for us that these are the five groups of giftings that most impact the church. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, right? Teachers. That's, that's powerful. Uh, I'm just going to say this uh, as I look at these. Uh, the word shepherd here um, is about the same word that we translate for pastor. And in fact, as much as we use the term pastor for church leaders today, uh, this is probably the only place in the entire New Testament where that word is used and reference to church leadership in Paul's writings. We are pastors. We are shepherds. Um, and in that... Paul is looking at this. How do you measure the effectiveness of a pastor, of a shepherd? Uh, often um, we sit there and we think, well, did he preach today in a way that I could follow? Did he make me laugh? Was it instructive and so forth? But that's really not the right question. The question isn't how good a minister is your pastor, but what Paul's looking at here in, in his sermon or his writing on the body is, how well does the pastor create other pastors? How well does an apostle create other apostles? How well does an evangelist create other evangelists? You see, the job isn't just to stand up and minister to people who are in no way involved in this process. The best pastors, the best evangelists, the best teachers are the ones who create other teachers and pastors. And evangelists. So, I mentioned earlier, Iona's teaching knowing him. Uh, that is a huge part of her ministry is to turn around and get people who've been through that study 
the study of the life of Jesus Christ and make them also teachers. They're supposed to pick that up and run with it. That's how we measure that effectiveness. Ion has her lists of people who've been through the class, and we look at those and we think, who can we link that teacher with, with what other person in the church? And she spends a lot of her time doing that. And I can tell you that when I came to uh, Parkview, that became my job, was helping to equip other people to do the job that I used to do. When I was a youth pastor in Nebraska, it was so easy by comparison. I found it so simple to just go ahead and do the ministry. But to build into the lives of others, and this is what you see Christ, by the way, doing this big division in his three-year ministry right at month 18. Christ goes from being the focus and center of all activity and dealing with his messiahship and his commission to pouring into the lives of those 12 and having them do the same thing. That's what Paul's talking about. So I ask you today, who's building into your life? Whose life are you building into? What are you sharing with them? You want to be a teacher? Are you committed to creating teachers? You want to be an evangelist? Are you committed to creating evangelists? That's what Paul is talking about. And I love this uh, next little portion here. He says, until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son to mature manhood. There's two temporal phrases here. Until. That is a like an hourglass. It's measuring time. We keep doing the work of the ministry of being one body, one baptism, one Lord, until, until that sand goes to the bottom of the hourglass and it is sifting through. Time is running out, but only God knows that day and that hour. But we do the best we can till that time that Christ takes us home. And then secondly, he says, until we attain. And attain is a completion of purpose. I have a reason for doing what I do. Why are you here this morning? What's your purpose? If your answer is, whether you'll say it out loud or not, is to sit and listen and then go home quickly because you've got other things to do today, then you're not attaining. To attain, what he's talking about here, is a measurable purpose. And let's see what it is. He uses a series of subordinate clauses. Attain to what? To the unity of the faith, and that's what I've already spoken on, and of the knowledge, and this is the clincher here, of the Son of God. Oh, man. We have to know. We have to be. We have to be with the Son of God. Do you know Jesus? Do you know him? I went to college, <coughs> seminary. By all accounts, I think most people would say that I was pretty bright coming through school. I read a lot. I studied Jesus a lot. But it wasn't until about 10 years ago when Jeff Gilmore and I uh, decided to go together and teach this class called Knowing Him, which just focused on the 18 months of Jesus' ministry. And we became personally aware of how deficient we were in the knowledge of the Son of God. Now, that seems like a strange thing for two pastors to say, but it's true. We knew Jesus. I could tell you a lot about Jesus. But we didn't understand from the heart who Jesus was. I, I, I wrote a letter to one of my friends in the pastorate trying to explain the process that we had been through. 
and I wanted to find it and reread it this morning, but it really was too long. But basically, it just says this to my friend Barry. He's a pastor in Oregon. I said, Barry, I can only encourage you to go through this study, to go through knowing him, because it's not until you do something like that that all of the seminary learning that you've had, and he had his doctorate, is going to make sense, is going to be relevant. You see, Jesus Christ is my reason for existence. I'm in love with him. I'm passionate about him. I weep when I think about him and my failings before him. He is what energizes me to get up every morning. He's why I cannot be a nun and I cannot be done, ever. You see, the problem is, for most of us, we choose church based upon what it does for us. I like this church body. I like that church body. I hate that church body. But that's not the focus. <coughs> Excuse me. According to Paul, it's the Son of God to reach mature manhood. It's an interesting word he uses there, and there, the man, to become a man, to become somebody that is admired, that has character. Not because he in and of himself is that kind of man, but because he most reflects what? The Son of God. I'll never reach that. Never. And I can't do it by myself. I need my community. I need other believers to reflect on that with me, to challenge me, to rebuke me, to call me out on the carpet when I need to be called out on the carpet, but also to encourage me to lift me. Uh, one of my friends in a preaching uh, contest, and yes, they have sermon contests, uh, I loved a phrase that he said. He'd, he'd had enough with God's people, kind of similar to the stories I just told. And he said, you know, one thing I've learned is that when the sheep begin to stink, hang out with the lambs. And he went on to explain, listen, Sometimes we just can't take it anymore. God's people say the dumbest things, do the dumbest things. But when that happens, go out and either create some new lambs, share your faith, see people come to know Christ, or go to people who are just knowing. Have you ever done that? Going around somebody who just, you've known Christ for 30 years, and you find somebody who's relatively new in the Lord, and they'll come up to you and say, Dave, 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 Dave look at this. Look, listen, this is so deep. This is so cool. For God so loved the world that, yeah, I know, that he gave his only begotten, yeah, I, you know, we teach that in Awada. Yeah, but I didn't know it. And you feel that joy and that power. When I was a relatively new believer, my wife and I went to, we were dating, and we went to Tranquility Park in Omaha to watch the fireworks on July 4th. And as the fireworks were just lighting up the sky in all kinds of colors and brightness, I just happened to say to Ion, you know, <coughs> that's what it's like when I open up the Word of God. That's what it's like for me. It's just boom. And Ion, who is a third-generation Christian, who had been in the church all her life, she told me later that she just stared at me. Like, really? Seriously? And that's one of the things that made her want to hang around with me because she wanted to catch some of that lambness, Right? That smell of the lamb. Where are you at this morning? 
Are the sheep stinking in your nostrils? Well, go and hang out with the lambs, the people who have just recently found the Lord. Go out and be part of the process of seeing people move from not knowing Christ to knowing your Savior, to having that excitement about who the Son of God is. Because then he contrasts it with this. Don't be children. Don't be children who are tossed about by waves, right? Who are pushed about by the winds of what? Deceitful teaching, of bad doctrine, of human cunning. And I'll say this, that it's not listed in here, but almost always when Paul talks in these terms, he's referencing not just human institutions, bad preachers, bad teachers. There are plenty of those. But he's also got his eyes on the demonic influences that assail the church. You see, he's talking to Gentiles who had no background in the church, in Christianity, in Judaism. And they were so subject <clears throat> to people that took their baby-like faith and could twist it and turn it into something that was self-serving and that was cultish and that would get them off track. Paul says, no, don't be that way. Grow into mature uh, love and faith in Jesus Christ. He ends this section by just talking about the fact that they need to a body every joint comes together in the body every one of us is necessary there's no one here that's been better gifted than another because all gifts that are given are given by jesus christ as you look through that list and you say well i'm not an apostle i'm not a prophet i'm not an evangelist and so forth what are you i'm telling you this you're not empty you have a gift and go look at the other lists of Paul's gifts if you're trying to find what it is. But your discovery of your gift and your desire and commitment to applying that gift to this body is paramount to the health of this church. You need to be doing what God has commissioned you to do. I, I wish I had time to go into the parable of the talents because I think it fits right in here very well. But you need to take your gift and show that cohesiveness uh, I said earlier, Greg can't be in two places at once. His body is one body. But now let's ask this question. What happens if one of your joints is out? Can I ask you, do I have permission to take one of your joints away? Your ankle joint? Knee joint? Hip joint? It's impossible to function without those joints. So it's impossible for us to be the church that we're supposed to be without them. That's what Paul's talking about. There's a community, a wholeness to the body of Christ. We're one body, we're one spirit, one Lord, one baptism, one God and Father of all. We're one. We need each other. We can't function without that. Resist the temptation, and it hits all of us, to become a nun or to become a done. And commit yourself to knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning. I praise you for your love and grace and mercy. Lord, help us to be the people that we're supposed to be. Father, if we've allowed bitterness to take root in our heart, if we've allowed for there to be a taking up of uh, hurts for others, Father, if we've caused division because of our words, I pray that you'd lead us into a spirit of repentance and that we would seek to be one. Father, help us to see you in each other but most of all, help our eyes to always stay remained and fixed upon your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.